Well, good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, and welcome to the Central Library of Enoch Pratt. And this is part of our Brown Lecture Series, made possible by a very, very generous grant from the Eddie and Sylvia Brown Foundation. And it is very fitting that our special guest is here today on International Women's Day. Now, you should know that we had a change of venue because we wanted to have this in a wonderful, intimate setting in our pole room, our Edgar Allan pole room, surrounded by books and things like that. However, some of you may know that the Central Library is getting, going to have a, as our architect says, a heart and lung transplant, transplant with a little Botox. <laughs> There's a renovation that's going to start. And tonight is a good illustration of what will come because our 1956 heating cooling system decided to show us how it could still hold on on a day that it's 75 degrees outside. <laughs> and since the Edgar Allan Poe room has been there almost since Mr. Poe, we thought you might want just a little ventilation. So I think we'll still be warm and cozy here because tonight's guest is really uh, someone special that's talking about something special in her life. In the Black Calhouns, Miss Buckley, the daughter of actress Lena Horne, and you don't mind me saying that, because delves deep into her family history, detailing the experiences of an extraordinary African-American family from the Civil War to Civil Rights, and beginning with her great-great-grandfather, Moses Calhoun, a house slave who used the rare advantage of his education to become a successful businessman in post-war Atlanta, Miss Buckley follows her family's two branches, one that stayed in the South and the other that settled in Brooklyn. And through the lens of her relatives' momentous lives, she examines major events throughout American history, from Atlanta during Reconstruction and the rise of Jim Crow, to the two world wars, to New York City during the Harlem Renaissance, and then the Civil Rights Movement. This ambitious, brilliant family witnessed and participated in the most crucial events in the 19th and 20th centuries. And combining personal and national history, the Black Calhouns is, and you'll see, and if you haven't gotten a copy, you can still purchase them on the way out because she will be signing. It's a portrait of six generations during dynamic times of struggle and triumph. So please welcome to the Pratt Library and Baltimore, Ms. Gail Buckley. Good evening. Thank you for coming. I'm honored and happy to be invited to speak about my new book at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. For anyone who cares about books and learning, Enoch Pratt is a hero. In 1882, the year after Tennessee enacted the first Jim Crow law, segregating railroad cars, and the year before the Supreme Court declared that the great Civil Rights Act of 1875 was unconstitutional, when everything blacks won in the Civil War and Reconstruction was being lost. Is that better? 
uh, was being lost, Enoch Pratt dared to establish a public circulating library open to all, rich and poor, without distinction of race or color. America might be moving backwards on race, but Pratt, a true progressive, was moving forward, clearly putting a love of books and learning above what most Southern whites considered to be the sacred cause of white supremacy. On behalf of all writers and readers, thank you, Enoch Pratt. that okay? All right. <laughs> Before I talk about my own book this evening, I would like to tell you a little bit about myself. I think the important thing to begin, to begin with is that I was born in 1937 and have therefore seen some pretty important changes in American life. I graduated from Radcliffe College in 1959, which means I had a Harvard education. I wish I had studied more and enjoyed myself less. <laughs> After college, I had a terrific job as a reporter at Life Magazine, a job I loved, even though I was paid less than a man doing the same work. Life is probably where I first thought about writing as a career. But part of being born in 1937 meant that most young women which co with college degrees got interesting if ill-paying jobs, and then quit to get married. I gave up life because my first husband wished me to. I did not work again for 15 years. I had been married twice. My first husband was a film director, and my second husband was a journalist, foreign correspondent, and author. I have two wonderful children and two delightful grandchildren. My writing life has been sporadic, intermittent, and late. My first book was published in 1986. My second book was published in 2001. And my third book was published in 2016. I clearly have not had a life in letters. But all three of my books have been inspired by the same impulse, family story. My first book, The Horns, was inspired by objects found in my grandfather's trunk. Thank you. Thank you, great. Thank you. In my grandfather's trunk, a family mementos. My second book, American Patriots, the story of blacks in the military from the revolution through Desert Storm, was inspired by another great uncle, my great uncle who died as an officer in the First World War. And my third and current book tells the story of the black Calhouns of Atlanta, the Horns founding family. Who are the black Calhouns? They were an extended, atypical African-American family who from 1865 to 1965, North and South, were also typically American in their dreams and aspirations. They were typically American because their founding father, my great-great-grandfather, Moses Calhoun, implicitly believed in the American dream. Although he was a slave until he was 35, he was culturally, geographically, and historically lucky. He was culturally lucky because despite laws mandating illiteracy for blacks, he had been educated in slavery. His owner, Andrew Bonaparte Calhoun, an Atlanta physician, the first man to sign George's article of secession, and a cousin of John C. Calhoun, wanted a literate butler and was powerful enough to ignore the laws. 
Moses was geographically lucky because he lived in a town and not on a plantation. And he was historically lucky because the great new Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution gave him everything he needed for luck in freedom. Besides the 13th Amendment, which made him truly free, the 14th gave him equality under the law, and the 15th gave him the vote. He was therefore an American citizen with all the rights of every other American citizen. As an enterprising and intelligent man, Moses took advantage of everything that Reconstruction had to offer. I don't know what would have happened to my great-great-grandfather without Reconstruction, but with it he was able to create a successful life for himself and his family and to utilize his skills and abilities to amass enough money and property so that in 1886, 20 years after the end of the war, the Atlanta Constitution would call him the wealthiest colored man in Atlanta. The black Calhouns, Moses and his mother and sister, had a sort of family business with Andrew Calhoun. Moses was the butler, his mother was the cook, and his sister was the nursemaid. They were considered favored slaves. A.B. Calhoun appeared to be a relatively benevolent and generous owner. After the war, he deeded property to Moses' mother and sister. The story of the black Calhouns is a story of the family of Moses, whose descendants would prosper in the north, and the family of Moses' sister, whose descendants stayed and prospered in Atlanta. From 1865 to 1965, the black Calhouns lived through the civil rights century, surely the most volatile American century of all. It was both a wonderful and a terrible century for black Americans. On the one hand, it was a century of freedom, aspiration, and achievement. On the other hand, for most, the freedom was ephemeral. And except for a lucky few, the doors of aspiration and achievement were closed. It's important to remember that American slaves were freed without compensation, preparation, or education. American emancipation, compared to Britain's, for example, was very badly done. The British... Uh, compensated uh, their slave owners and mandated that all ex-slaves should be educated. Reconstruction officially only lasted 10 years, but its spirit was indelibly engraved on the psyches of all the black Calhouns through the generations. They not only believed in America, they believed they had a role to play in the progress of their country and community. As might be expected, the black Calhouns who moved north fulfilled their aspirations and achieved success. Less expected, perhaps, those who stayed in Atlanta had equally successful and aspirational lives, in some ways even more successful. Obviously, in many aspects, life in the north was easier than life in the south. Northern parents could raise their children where there were no whites-only signs on libraries, museums, and parks. But high achievement was the norm on both sides of the family, with interesting differences. Northern achievement tended to be political and public, while Southern achievement tended to be professional and private. The other differences were personal. Among the black Calhouns, Northern marriages tended to be unhappy, and families more dysfunctional, with more divorce, adultery, etc., while Southern marriages were longer lasting and seem to be happier. My personal theory is that with fewer social and political choices and opportunities, 
Southerners turned inward towards family, church, and community. While Northerners had more choices, they also had more temptation. Moses Calhoun waited until he was free to marry. At 36, he found a bride who was 15 years younger, looked white, and had been born free in New Orleans. Their two beautiful daughters, Cora and Lena Calhoun, were both highly educated in the so-called missionary schools that sprang up all over the old Confederacy right after the war. Sponsored by white Northern philanthropists and mostly staffed by white Northern teachers, these schools and colleges instilled confidence as well as rigorous academics into their students who were being trained to become the first black teachers in the South. Cora graduated from Atlanta University and Lena graduated from Fisk in Nashville, Tennessee, where a Massachusetts youth named W.E.B. Du Bois, known as Willie, who was being prepped for Harvard, fell hopelessly in love with her. Back in, the Berkshire, back in the Berkshire Mountains of Massachusetts, where Du Bois's family had lived in freedom since colonial days, young Willie was both the star student and the star athlete but he had never before seen such confident young men or beautiful girls as he saw in the South. And he was bowled over by what he described in his autobiography as the rosy apricot beauty of 16-year-old Lena Calhoun of Atlanta. Du Bois famously named his fellow black teachers to be the talented 10th, the 10% of the Negro race whose job was to uplift the other 90%. Both Calhoun girls married successful young men. Breaking Willie Du Bois's heart, Lena married a slightly older fifth graduate who became principal of the first black high school in Nashville and later, in the classic black middle class way of being something of a renaissance man, a successful ophthalmologist in Chicago. Her older sister, Cora, married Edwin Horn, a journalist, editor, teacher known as the Adonis of the Negro press. And their cousin, the daughter of Moses' sister, married a graduate of Atlanta University who became the very prosperous and highly respected first black licensed real estate broker in Atlanta. While Cora and Lena Calhoun and their husbands moved north in the wake of Plessy v. Ferguson, the Supreme Court decision that entrenched white supremacy, their cousin's family stayed in Atlanta to remain pillars of the black community. Cora and Edwin Horn moved to New York City to raise their four sons, two of whom were born in the North, in still semi-bucolic Brooklyn. Edwin, a former Republican activist, became a Democrat and a Tammany man, writing pamphlets for the 1910 election that led black men for the first time to leave the Republican Party and elect a Democrat as governor of New York. Edwin's successful work on behalf of black Tammany also won New York its first black, black National Guard unit. It became the famous 369th Regiment, known as Harlem's Own, the most highly decorated American unit in the First World War, although it fought in French uniforms under the French flag because racist President Woodrow Wilson did not want blacks to bear arms for America. Cora Horn's oldest son, 2nd Lieutenant Errol Horn, a professional soldier and veteran of the Pancho Villa campaign, died in the war, not in battle, but in the 1918 influenza pandemic. 
Black life in the South was also touched by the World War. The granddaughter of Moses' sister married a young medical officer, a wartime captain, who became one of the most beloved members of Atlanta's black community and the father and grandfather of three more doctors. While life in the South remained very difficult for blacks in general, for some Atlanta blacks in particular, life was very good indeed. A business culture rather than a planter culture, Atlanta always had one eye on northern investment. While it punished certain black political aspirations, it rarely punished black business aspirations. Atlanta remained a good place for enterprising and family-oriented blacks. Cora Horn, a true member of the Talented Tenth, came into her own during the war as a Red Cross organizer, as secretary of the Brooklyn Urban League, as a director of the Big Brothers and Big Sisters Federation, where she was a mentor to the very young Paul Robeson, and as an appointee by the mayor of New York to the Brooklyn Victory Committee. The war years were actually Cora's slow years. The former suffragist really became an activist in the 1920s after she got the vote. Meanwhile, in 1919, she made her granddaughter, Lena Calhoun Horn, the child of her second son, Edwin, known as Ted, a lifetime member of the NAACP at the age of two. Cora was a busy woman and Edwin Horn was a successful man, but they had an unhappy marriage. Handsome and debonair Edwin was known to have a lady friend in Manhattan. His son, my grandfather Ted, also had an unhappy marriage. Despite baby Lena, both of my mother's young parents deserted her before she was two. After making a small killing gambling on the Black Sox baseball scandal of 1919, Ted Horn left his good Tammany patronage job to pursue easy money on the fringes of the rackets, while Lena's mother, a member of an old black Brooklyn family originally from Massachusetts, left to pursue an unsuccessful theatrical career. Until she was six years old, little Lena Horn lived in Brooklyn with her grandparents, where her grandmother never spoke to her husband except to say, good morning, Mr. Horn. Post-war black life in the North changed radically in the 1920s. Cora Horn, now a voter, became a Republican activist, certainly for historical reasons, but possibly to annoy her Tammany activist husband. She campaigned for Calvin Coolidge in the 1924 election as a member of the Speaker's Bureau for the Republican Party and as a national organizer and secretary of the Eastern Division of the Republican National Women's Auxiliary. Something else happened in the early 1920s. Suddenly, Harlem was in vogue, not just in New York, but around the world. Harlem's sudden vogue stemmed from a combination of reasons, from the fact that Harlem nightclubs in the early 1920s, uh, protected by a compliant mayor, happily ignored prohibition, to the discovery of African tribal art in former German colonies, which caused Picasso to change the faces of his painting, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, into African masks, to a Broadway show called Shuffle Along, a fast-paced review with a hit song called I'm Just Wild About Harry and a hit dance called The Charleston, to a whole new group of black poets and novelists, including Cora's third son, Frank Horn, known as a family intellectual. Frank became a prize-winning poet and young second-tier member of the Harlem Renaissance. 
In typical black middle-class fashion, he also had a day job as a practicing Harlem ophthalmologist like his uncle. In typical black middle-class fashion, uh, in the mid-1920s, Frank went south for the first time to become dean and first black acting president of an industrial college in Fort Valley, Georgia, that could have been the model for the college in Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Frank wrote home about his new Southern experience. I'm initiated into the Negro race. From now on, I am the enterer of side doors and back doors, and sometimes no door at all. Meanwhile, Cora's Southern cousin and her daughters, married to prosperous husbands, were also club women, but of a very different nature. Middle-class black Southern club women concentrated on self-improvement rather than do-gooding or uplifting the race, which could be dangerous occupations in the 1920s South. They formed Chautauqua circles to discuss horticulture, literature, and foreign travel, but politics were forbidden, and do-gooding was done strictly through Atlanta's first congregational church. Cora's granddaughter, little Lena, now had her own first Southern experience. In 1923, Lena's errant mother, touring the South as an actress, wanted her daughter with her, but mostly left her with strangers. Unhappy Lena now became an object of contention between her mother and grandmother, pulled between her secure Brooklyn life and wherever, and wherever her mother was in the South. So young Lena, who went to an ethical culture nursery school and a Roman Catholic grade school in Brooklyn, now attended one-room Southern schoolhouses where the other children always hated her. In 1927, however, Lena's life changed again when her mother eloped to Havana with a white Cuban military officer. For the next two years, Lena remained in the South, happy at last, living next to her Uncle Frank's English teacher fiancé in the girls' dorm of his Fort Valley school. Frank himself would be rescued from the back, do black back doors of the South in the next decade by an invitation to join FDR's so-called Black Cabinet as Assistant Director of the Division of Negro Affairs in the New Deal's National Youth Administration. In 1929, Lena left the South and went back to Brooklyn permanently, where her beloved grandfather took her to museums and the theater. She was so smitten by Fred Astaire on Broadway in The Gay Divorce that she asked for and received singing and dancing lessons both leading to starring roles in middle-class black Brooklyn's young amateur theatrics, as well as notice in the black press. Everything changed for Lena in 1932, however, when Cora Horn died and her mother returned from Cuba with her husband, now a refugee from the latest revolution who spoke no English. Needing money, Lena's mother took her out of Brooklyn's girls' high school to audition for the chorus of the world-famous Cotton Club a big, glamorous, mob-run showcase of black talent for all white audiences in the middle of a black community. Lena's father, Ted, was one of the rare blacks allowed in to see the show because his best friend, a former World War I black officer, was now the numbers king of Harlem. Lena, 16 years old and beautiful, whose mother protected her virtue by sitting in the dressing room every night, was also famously protected by the black mob. By 1935, however, Lena was ready to move on. Against the wishes of the Cotton Club, Lena's mother spirited her, way, spirited her away to Boston to sing with Noble Sissel's Society Orchestra, meaning black musicians playing white music. In 
at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. It was the first black orchestra, and she was the first black singer to appear at Boston's Ritz. Lena sang Blue Moon in a white dress and won a Harvard fan club that came every night. But Lena, 19 years old and tired of show business, as well as her mother hovering in the dressing room, took a vacation on her own to visit her father, who now lived in Pittsburgh, where he owned a small hotel with a discreet private gambling den. In, Pitts, in Pittsburgh, Lena met and married my father, 28-year-old Louis Jones, who had a patronage job in city government and whose older lawyer brothers were important in black democratic ward politics. Lena was now a young housewife who made occasional forays into show business, mostly because her husband, who played high-stakes bridge and unknown to Lena, never gave up his former girlfriend, needed the money. Despite the birth of my baby brother, little Teddy, Lena, finally aware of Lewis's philandering, called an end to the marriage. Leaving the children with her father and stepmother, in 1940 she went back to New York to look for work. Living at the Harlem YWCA, Lena had the Calhoun luck. Charlie Barnett, one of the most popular of the big bands, whose hit 1940 record was Cherokee, was looking for a girl singer. Big bands in the 1930s and 40s were like 1960s rock groups in popularity, and Lena made well-received recordings with both Barnett and Artie Shaw. Sorry, Barnett, Shaw, and Benny Goodman were the only big band leaders who hired black singers or musicians. But Lena was tired of bands and hated touring. She wanted to be in New York with her children. She now got another career break, singing at Cafe Society in Greenwich Village. Cafe Society was unique in its day. Besides presenting extraordinary young talents like Billie Holiday and Zero Mostel, it was the only integrated nightclub outside of Harlem, with black patrons as well as black performers. Unbeknown to most of the performers, Lena was an enormous hit. Unbeknown to most of the performers and patrons, however, Cafe Society was a fundraising outlet for the then-legal Communist Party USA, as the American Communist Party was known. If she had known, Lena doubtless would not have cared. She did not know a communist from a Republican. But in the 1950s, every performer who appeared at Cafe Society would be blacklisted. Now, however, she was able to bring me and little Teddy to New York, where we all lived in her childhood Brooklyn home. Little Teddy's visit was short-lived, however. Lewis's cruel divorce agreement stipulated that I would live with my mother while Teddy lived with our father. But my mother and father were soon to, but my mother and I were soon to move even farther away. Because of her Cafe Society success, Lena had received an offer from Hollywood. Not from the movies, but from a new nightclub called The Little Truck. Once again, she was an overnight sensation with lines around the back block. One man who came night after night was MGM's Roger Eden, the man who discovered Judy Garland. Talent and beauty won Lena a long-term MGM contract, the first in Hollywood for a black performer, but it might not have happened without World War II. Lena arrived in Hollywood the same time Walter White of the NAACP and 1940 Republican presidential candidate Wendell Wilkie began their campaign with Hollywood producers to eliminate degrading racist stereotypes of people of color, including Negroes, Asians, and Latins, for the sake of wartime allies. 
Vaselina, whose contract, partly brokered by her father, stipulated no servant or jungle roles, was almost single-handedly expected to prove to the Allies that America, unlike Germany and Japan, was not a racist country. So Lena became known as the first black movie star. She became the first black member of the board of the Screen Actors Guild and the first black person to appear on the cover of a movie magazine. Despite allies of color, however, her scenes were always isolated from the main portion of the movie so that e they could easily be cut out of the picture when it was shown in the South. In fact, except for Cabin in the Sky and Stormy Weather, she was cut out of every picture she ever made in Hollywood when they were shown in the South. Unless the cast was all black, the Southern rules stipulated that blacks in movies could only be shown as servant types. Thus, nightclubs continued to be hugely important theatrical venues for Lena, from Harlem's Cotton Club to Boston's Ritz-Carlton to Greenwich Village's Cafe Society to Hollywood's Little Trock. And now, in late 1942, while she was waiting for her first movie to be released, she became the first black entertainer to appear at Manhattan's very elegant Savoy Plaza Hotel. Once again, she was an overnight sensation, so well noticed that she was featured in Time, Life, and Newsweek, all in the same February 1943 week. Nightclubs gave Lena recognition, but World War II made her a star. Black GIs needed a pinup, and Lena was always embarrassed that she was the only one. While two Atlanta cousins married Tuskegee Airmen, Lena was chose, chosen as queen of the 99th Pursuit Squadron, their combat arm. She toured black army camps, but was kicked out of the USO for refusing to sing at a camp in Arkansas, where black GIs were forced to sit behind German prisoners of war for her show. Her grandmother would have been proud. The post-war years saw many changes in Lena's life. One door was shut and others were opened. By 1947, her movie career was essentially over, but her nightclub and live performing career went from strength to strength. In 1947, she went to Europe for the first time. She had great success touring the still war-torn British Isles. She had built-in fans. Although Cabin in the Sky and Stormy Weather were deemed unfit for white GIs, they had been shown throughout the British fleet. She also had a major success in Paris, where more importantly, she married her second husband, Lenny Hayton, a white MGM conductor-composer-arranger who became a wonderful stepfather to me. They came home to find the blacklist, which began in 1947 with the Hollywood Ten, all screenwriters and former Communist Party members who went to prison for refusing to testify before a congressional committee. The blacklist ultimately touched all professions and walks of life. Lena was finally named in 1950 when she was listed in Red Channels. Lena's crimes included her appearance at Cafe Society, and especially her friendship with two men, W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson. Because they were actually her grandparents' friends, the relationships were more dutiful than political. Hollywood communists had indeed wooed Lena, but Paul Robeson, in fact, warned her against them. In reality, Lena was one of the luckier blacklisted artists. Although banned from network TV for 10 years, in movies for six years, her nightclub career and international touring career never suffered. In the days before TV kept people home at night, she remained one of the highest paid nightclub performers in the world. By 1957, she was cleared by the blacklisters and starring in Jamaica, a hit Broadway musical, 
Broadway, by the way, basically ignored the blacklist. Lena wasn't the only Calhoun to be suspect. Frank Horn came under his own blacklisting cloud in Washington, where he was investigated by the Civil Service Loyalty Board as the founder of the National Committee Against Discrimination in Housing. Supposedly ferreting out un-Americanism, blacklisting was also an excuse for racism and anti-Semitism. Appropriately enough, the modern civil rights era partly began in 1960 at Cora Horn's alma mater. In April 1960, a full-page ad appeared in the Atlanta Constitution. We, the students of the six affiliated institutions forming the Atlanta University Center, have joined our hearts, minds, and bodies in the cause of gaining those rights which are inherently ours as members of the human race and as citizens of these United States. We must say in all candor that we plan to use every legal and nonviolent means at our disposal to secure full citizenship rights as members of this great democracy of ours. That same year, a young Atlanta cousin, Moses Calhoun's great-great-grandniece, was chosen to be one of the desegregators of an Atlanta high school, until her mother, fearing the traumatic upheaval surrounding the integration of Little Rock Central High School, had second thoughts and sent her daughter to a Massachusetts boarding school. Meanwhile, in the North, Lena threw herself into the civil rights movement. She and Frank Sinatra produced a famous two-night Carnegie Hall benefit, one night of which benefit, benefited the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the youth branch of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Lena went to Jackson, Mississippi on behalf of the NAACP, the organization in which she had been enrolled at the age of two, to join Medgar Evers at a voting rights rally two days before he was assassinated. She went to the March on Washington wearing her NAAC cap, and she recorded a civil rights song called Now that was banned from several radio stations. The enemies of, of civil rights had every powerful weapon at their disposal, but the civil rights movement won the moral high ground early, and the long arc of justice ultimately turned towards American blacks. The larger and more systemic aspects of official racism were defeated in what could be called the Second World Civil War. It was a strange war, waged on one side by churches, children, and young people, and waged on the other by murderers, terrorists, snarling dogs, and fire hoses. Despite assassinations and too many martyrs, voting rights were achieved, and Jim Crow was officially dismantled. By 1973, the city of Atlanta, the city that famously became too busy to hate, had a black mayor, and former students of the Atlanta University Manifesto were now in charge of the municipality. Although the 1970s were personally mournful years for Lena, who lost her father, son, and husband between 1971 and 1972, the 1980s saw another extraordinary change in the career of Moses Calhoun's great-granddaughter. She opened in a one-woman Broadway show that brought her every honor and accolade known in the theater. The 1980s were a decade of honors for black Calhoun's North and South. In March 1981, the same month that saw Lena's triumphant Broadway return, Dr. Homer Nash, the great-grandson-in-law of Moses' sister, died at the age of 94. In the words of the Atlanta Constitution, Dr. Homer's Nash, Dr. Homer Nash's death ends an era for Atlanta. He was the longest practicing black doctor in Georgia and the longest practicing doctor of any race in Atlanta.
You could call the black Calhouns lucky, but they were never selfish achievers. They shared their, their bounteous gifts and achievements with their community and their country. It is fair to say that the black Calhouns is as much the story of America as it is of a family. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to take questions, if anybody has questions. Yes. I'm not sure. I have the deed, but I don't know whether they sold. They lived in Atlanta, and the land was in Noonan, outside, just outside of Atlanta, where um, Dr. Uh, Calhoun's uh, home was, main home was. I'm not sure what happened to the land, but they certainly, he helped them out after the war. And they had a, they had a leg up when freedom came because uh, they were educated and because he had given them this financial security. They may have sold it. I don't know what happened. Yes. I did, I did. I was. Um, I was like four years old when I went to California. We lived in California all during the war. Then after the war, we sort of moved back to New York as our home base. And I went to Europe when she went to Europe. I mean, I was in school, then I'd go on all vacations and things. I did a lot of traveling as a child. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask for you to come to the mic because we're going to record it for the podcast. So we need you to come to the mic if you have any more questions. Any more questions, anybody? Yes. Um... You said your great-grandfather, Teddy, was uh, in the racket because of the numbers? Yeah, I think, yes. He, well, his best friend was the numbers king of Harlem. Okay. He never got into trouble with the law, my, great, my gr grandfather, thank goodness. What kind of relationship did your mother have with your grandfather who was in the Oh, racket? she adored him, but she never, he never saw her when she was a child. Okay. He would send her an incredibly expensive doll, but she never saw him. He, he would send her little um, rabbit fur coats and things like that. He didn't want to really spend any time with his child. 19, he was a charming, attractive man, but he had no time for his child. In 1978, she sang in The Wiz. Uh, do you recall what the message was? Uh, be your, something about, uh, something you about believe yourself. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself, I yes. believe in you. Yes. Lena Horne. Right? Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, yes, I'd like to know if um, your mom was a great entertainer. Did she entertain a lot at home? No. She never listened to herself. She hated listening to herself sing. She never sang at home. We would sing together for fun, but she never sang at home. And she never played her records at home. And she never watched herself. Um, just your thoughts on the black bourgeoisie today. Well, the black bourgeoisie had a place during segregation. They were the bridge between the white world and the black world, and they were meant to uplift the black world and help them. I, don't, I think with integration, uh, there's, I don't know if there's a... There's, I mean, I don't, there are more members of the black middle class today than there were. 
uh, when my mother was a child and when this whole story was happening. So uh, maybe you could tell me. I mean, I, I do, I'm not, I, I think that, you know, I think education is the key to everything. And all members, anybody can become a member of the middle class if they are educated and have good work. It's economics and it's education. And that's what made the middle class, the black, old black, black bourgeoisie what it was, economics and education. And that's the same thing today. That's what it's all about. So that's the whole problem. Hi, I just wanted to know, um, after you were separated from your brother, uh, following the divorce, uh, how long was it before you saw each other again and what became of him? We would see each other um, every now and again. He would come and stay. He was allowed to come and stay. He came and stayed for a long period during the war. Then later on I would see him. I'd see him every year for little bits and pieces. He died young. Okay. I want to know if you were encouraged to take singing or piano lessons or any kind of formal music lesson. Well, I took piano lessons as a child and I just was not good about practicing. So I clearly, and I never took singing lessons really. Um, I liked to dance, I did ballet, but I was not musical in that way. Do you have children, and has it been passed along to them? Uh, neither of my children are particularly musical, though my granddaughter is very musical. Mm -hmm. She's madly musical. So it skipped a generation or two. <laughs> yes. Well, I hope, I, I have no idea, but I think it's a very good idea, and I hope somebody hears you say that. <laughs> Thank you for a wonderful presentation. Um, can you share with us what it was like being a young African-American woman at Radcliffe in the 50s? Well, I will say one thing. Harvard was more sexist than racist. Uh, there were libraries, there were buildings, there were whole areas of the Harvard Yard that we couldn't even walk in. There were probably five or six um, black girls in my class, so I would say there were probably 25 maybe in all of Radcliffe. There were obviously lots of black people at Harvard, certainly in the graduate schools. It was a big Harvard community in Cambridge, but it was incredibly sexist. I had one of my favorite stories is that a friend of mine, a dorm member, who was a member of the Radcliffe basketball team, her mother and her grandmother had been members of the Radcliffe bas basketball team, and she was playing a championship game against Tufts when suddenly in the middle of the game the Harvard uh, basketball team walked on the court and said, get off, it's our practice time. So they had to stop the game. I mean, it was incredibly sexist. We didn't think about that. We just cowered and did what, as we were told. We never thought about um, feminism in those days. Thank you. 
In the late 50s and early 60s, I remember your mom so much on the Ed Sullivan Show. My parents were always very excited about her performances. Do you know how many times did she appear on the Ed Sullivan Show? And were you ever there backstage? I was once in the audience at the Ed Sullivan Show when she appeared. Um, She liked Ed Sullivan. He was a very, very, very nice man. And she appeared several times. I couldn't tell you exactly how many times, but she appeared several times. He was one of the people who helped get her off the blacklist. He was a very nice man. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Um, what, what kinds of memorials are there for Lena? Is there a Lena Horn Foundation? Is there a Lena Horn Park in Hollywood? There, nothing. Oh, she has a star in Hollywood. She has right. a star in Palm Springs. But best of all, in New York City, there's going to be a grade school, kindergarten through eighth grade, to be called the Lena Horn School. It's a school where they concentrate on rigorous academics but choral singing every day for grades kindergarten through eight, which I think are the best years anyway. Those are the really learning years. Yes. And what, this is Cab Calloway's daughter, everybody. Thank you. And I lived uh, with Lena Horn. Uh, when I was uh, <clears throat> a teenager for almost a year. And can you imagine a teenager who is so conscious of how they look living with Lena Horn? <laughs> but uh, it was a wonderful experience. She was a wonderful lady. She was always a lady and uh, had that Calhoun training and the, and the basic um, uh, protocols and etiquette and things of that type, you could see that she had a, a good base in, in her life. She was a wonderful person. Thank you. Thank you. If there are no more questions, I'd be happy to sign it. Yes. Yes, good evening. Uh, My name is Sharon. I moved here from um, Brooklyn about two, three years ago. Do you still have ties to New York City and Brooklyn? And where was the home that um, you lived in? My mother was born at 189 Chauncey Street. Okay. She went to... um, St. Peter Claver Church sang in the girls' choir, a children's choir. She went to Holy Name School. She then went to girls' high school. She was a totally Brooklyn person, typical of any Brooklynite of any race, was her life in Brooklyn. Do you still go back there? No, but the house is still standing. Okay, yeah. That's Bedford Stuyvesant, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's where I'm from. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Margo Jefferson. Yes, it's a great book. Well, she was in Chicago. Um, 
when my great-great-grandparents bought their house in Decker Stuyvesant, it was known as Stuyvesant Heights, it was a totally, uh, basically a white community with uh, a small enclave of middle-class blacks and lots of Irish. Uh, next door to them was a Swedish uh, farm. This was, it was a brownstone. They were sort of gentrifying Brooklyn then, or making it more like a city. They'd only recently become part of New York City. It had been a separate city. And at the turn of the century, Brooklyn, Queens, and they all came together as New York City. And um, Chauncey Street, she lives in one of the two brownstones. It was a farm on one side and a livery stable on the other. So it was very, and across the street was a uh, Irish tenement where Jackie Gleason lived, and he was the same age as my mother, but they never knew each other, because my grandmother would never have allowed her to play with any little Irish child. <laughs> so, that's it. Okay, this will be the last question. Okay. What is the fondest memory of your mother? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I mean, at what age? I mean, I remember sitting on her lap when she taught me to read. I remember she taught me to do this here at the church and here's the steeple, open the doors and see the people. Um, I remember, we used to trade books. We were both avid, she was an avid reader, so I became an avid reader. And I remember very, very fondly uh, when I was a teenager, having come to Europe to meet my mother and stepfather in London from my school in New York, I arrived in the hotel. Before she even like said hello or we hugged or anything, she said, you've got to read this book. It was the first James Bond. <laughs> so that's a fond memory. So we, and we loved the same um, TV shows. Anytime, thank goodness for Turner Classic Movies for the last five years of her life. If it was Betty Davis, she was happy. If it was Leslie Howard, she was happy. So that was, the, and we had the same taste. Okay. Well, we want to, on behalf of the director and the board, we would like to thank you for coming. Um, Mrs. Buckley will be signing books at the end of the hall, so please go out and purchase your books, and let's give her a warm Baltimore. Thank you. Thank you very much.